HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from, Bro- from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking about a part of the food system worldwide that gets little attention in the U.S., which is aquaculture. Globally, aquaculture is a $100 billion industry, comprising over one half of the world's seafood production. Because of the significant problem of overfishing and the depletion of wild fish stocks globally, it's expected to become an increasingly critical part of the human food supply. In fact, one projection by the World Bank estimates that two-thirds of global seafood supply will come from aquaculture culture by 2030. Joining us today to give an overview of this really important industry, including support for and concerns about the practices, um, is today's panel of experts. We have Brianna Draxler, Patty Lavera, and Bren Smith. Brianna is an associate editor at Popular Science, who recently authored a piece about salmon farming in Norway. Patty Lavera is the executive director of Food and Water Watch, where she coordinates the food team. And Bren Smith is the executive director of Green Wave and owner of Thimble Island Oyster Co., who pioneered the development of restorative 3D ocean farming. Brianna, Patty, Bren, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great. So, Patty, let's start with you. I want to start with a vocabulary. What is uh, a vocabulary lesson, (laughs) that is? What is uh, aquaculture, and how is it different from fishing? So, it's a big term. It can encompass a lot of things, which I suspect we're going to start peeling apart. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's it's basically, you know, farming um, fish or other, um, other foods in in the water. So it could be, you know, uh, seaweed or um, oysters and things like that, but it could also go all the way up to fin fish like salmon. And um, is, this, is this only in the oceans or can you, can you do aquaculture uh, elsewhere on land, for instance? 
Yeah, so this is this is what's becoming more clear. It's a, it's a word kind of, kind of as big as farming. You know, you can do it in a range of scales and a range of settings. So there's folks who are doing aquaculture in the open ocean, um, you know, that in really large-scale um, fish farms, and there's folks who are now doing it, you know, inland closed systems, you know, in warehouses in cities uh, where they grow vegetables and, and fish together, and all of that is kind of under the umbrella of aquaculture. Great. Um, so, Brianna, um, turning to you, in your article, you write that one in five people today are dependent on fish as their primary protein source. Um, you also talk about how demand is, is coming dangerously close to outweighing supply. Can you give us a, a bit more background on these statistics? Yeah, absolutely. So, it's the UN that, that says that one in five people are already dependent on fish as their primary source of protein, but you know, obviously the population is growing and as um, lifestyles improve to the point where they're able to eat more meat, fish is becoming even more important. And right now, 90% of our wild fish are either at their limit or exceeded. So 30% approximately are overfished and another 60 are kind of at max capacity. They're sustainable biologically right now, but if we fish them any more than that, they're going to be overfished the same way the other ones are. So it really is, we're at a, a critical point where we're, we're really using a lot of those resources and, and fishing can only go so far because it depends on wild resources. And in your article, you talk about salmon fishing, fish farming specifically, and in, the, in Norway. So I'm wondering what you, drew you to Norway and to exploring salmon in particular. Is this, is this like the most in-demand fish worldwide, would you say? Well, Norway is the number one exporter of salmon, and salmon is a really popular and growing fish in terms of interest. So the, the demand for salmon has been increasing about 13% a year, um, according to the Norwegian Seafood Council. So it really, you know, it, it, the reputation for sure is that salmon is great for you. It has omega-3s. And so those types of things, when as the marketing goes and, and things, it's, it's, people love salmon, you know? It's mm -hmm. a good tasting fish. My mom loves salmon. <laughs> a lot of salmon. <laughs> um, Bren, I want to I turn to you. Um, so, so we heard from Patty, there are a couple different types of, of aquaculture, fin fish, non-fin fish. Um, that's definitely a tongue twister that will get me at some point in this episode. Um, but, but your company, Thimble Island Oyster Co., operates one of the first sustainable 3D ocean farms um, in the country. So can you tell us what is a 3D farm and what What's innovative about its approach? Yeah, sure. I mean, just to say, I come out of both the, the um, wild fishery. I fished in the Bering Sea and the at Grand Banks, George's Banks. And then when the cod stocks crashed, I actually then went and tried my hand at salmon aquaculture, not as, uh, as you know, owning a company, but just working on the farms and became really disillusioned. We used to say on those farms, we're growing neither fish nor food. We were essentially doing Iowa pig farms at sea. And, so, and the result is aquaculture is probably the worst brand name uh, in the grocery store today. And we still have that hangover from the 80s and 90s, and that's the context we're um, operating in. Mm -hmm. What I've tried to do is not grow what people want to eat, right? Rather ask the ocean, what can the ocean provide? and then try to shift taste. And so what we developed was a version of a 3D or vertical ocean farming where we use the entire water column, extremely small footprints to grow a mix of shellfish and seaweeds. And the reason we like those species is that, one, they restore rather than deplete, right? They, they restore um, reef ecosystems. They soak up nitrogen and carbon. Um, and they, uh, they function, the whole farm functions as a uh, storm surge protector. 
Um, but it's also, most importantly, zero input food. So all the problems with salmon we don't have. It doesn't take any feed, fresh water, fertilizer, land. So mm-hmm. it makes it the most sustainable kind of food production on the planet. Wow. Um, so when you say vertical, can you kind of sketch this out for us, what like a typical uh, farm looks like? Sure, yes. Yeah. So just to kind of imagine an underwater garden. And um, so we have these hurricane-proof anchors at the edges. Mm-hmm. And then across the surface, of um, probably about seven to eight feet below the surface, we have these horizontal lines where we grow our, our kelp vertically. We have um, scallops and lantern nets, mussels and things we call mussel socks. And then below that, we have oysters in cages. And then below that in the mud, we, uh, we have clams and we also harvest salt from our grounds. It's really how many things can we grow in these small acreage areas that are mm-hmm. restorative to provide good local food for folks. So kind of almost like compla- companion planting for the sea, would you say? Yep, exactly. Exactly. What's, I mean, this is our chance on the ocean to actually do food right, learn from the errors of land-based agriculture, learn from the errors of sort of industrial aquaculture coming into the 80s and 90s, and really begin again and think through a new food system that creates jobs, restores ecosystems, and just creates good local food. The other thing I'd say real quick is that we don't need to privatize the oceans. And, like, I, I've, worked, I've worked for 30 years on the oceans. They're beautiful, pristine places. This is more about architecture than just growing food, right? So we designed our farms so anybody can swim, boat, kayak over our farms. We don't own that area. All we own is the process of growing seaweed and shellfish. So it's not a privatization that comes. That's really important because we, we want to allow community um, involvement and also ownership of, of our oceans and keep them that way. And how have you marketed products, like you mentioned, uh, seaweed, uh, that are relatively a relatively marginal part of the American diet? And have you seen demand for these types of products grow? Yeah, I mean, the hard part is I'm selling something that tastes disgusting. Right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the challenge we have. I would say that's but a challenge. I mean, we, we have to shift taste and right. shift them into what I think of as a climate cuisine now, what we discovered is don't treat it like seafood, but treat it as one of the 10,000 edible plants in the sea. So I worked with Brooks Headley, amazing uh, chef in New York City. I brought my kelp to him, and he made barbecue kelp uh, noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. Like, sold out every night, absolutely delicious. Uh-huh. We're creating bouillon cubes that replace bu- beef bouillon for broths. We have a uh, working with Google to do a beef burger that's 40% kelp. And so we're just in this transition of moving bivalves and sea vegetables to the center of the plate, wild fish to the edges. And it's going to take real creativity mm-hmm. from our chefs, from our home chefs, um, to really invent a new cuisine for this new era. And that's the fun part. It's kind of exciting. In, in discussing climate impact and other food system issues, I, th- I hear from a lot of people, um, you know, we should be eating less meat, right? That's pretty pretty common uh, thing um, out there today. So, can you satisfy a lot of the demand for protein with um, non-fin fish? Do you think, in your opinion, or uh, is this not really? Yeah. Is that not really meant to be a substitute? So you got to remember, you know, fish don't make omega threes and all these things. They eat them. So I would say, if we start eating like fish, we get the benefits, all the nutrients we need, but reduce pressure on fish stocks. I mean, this is I can't provide all the protein from my farm of course, right? I can do it with some of the bivalves, some of the sea vegetables, but we're just at the beginning of, you know, the 10,000 edible plants. We can get more. Um, there are seaweeds with more um, protein than red meat, more iron than red meat, more vitamin C than citrus fruits, 
Like, we can do this. It's just we're at the beginning of exploring an entire, entirely new, new agricultural system and sort of a selection of things we can grow and eat. And in your opinion, um, I mean, I, I certainly feel this way, but I, I feel like we don't hear very much about aquaculture in the U.S. And um, most of the seafood production happening here is happening in fisheries. So not not and by that, I mean, not fish farms. Um, why do you think this is the case, in your opinion? And, and do you see that changing anytime soon? I think two reasons. One is aquaculture industry really screwed up. They came in with an industrial model basically trying to do like banana plantations or the Iowa pig farms at sea, just as the land-based food movement was figuring out ways to sort of deconstruct it and figure out how to do it sustainably. So it was moving completely in the wrong direction, and they just grew terrible food. So we, we have that hangover. Um, I think the other, the other piece is that um, people, uh, it's this problem of, of growing what people want to eat. Right, and that's just driven the industry. And so suddenly you have bad salmon, farm salmon, uh, competing against wild salmon. And that's just not what should be happening. We, we should actually reduce um, the amount of salmon we eat, eat other things out of the sea, and, and, and not just try to grow this, um, you know, a fish that actually uh, takes a lot of inputs. Now, I will say that aquaculture's on the technology side, it's one of the most creative sectors in the food system now. Fish feed... Uh, like ratios, wild fish ratios, are plummeting. Now, I still am not like a supporter of salmon aquaculture because I just don't think we need it to be on the table. I think there are just so many other options. Mm-hmm. But there, we can't label it, it. It's a moving target. There's a lot of people working really hard um, to solve some of these problems. But I'm very much in another sector. So, um, Patty, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Um, I was surprised in doing research for this episode to learn that in the U.S. we import 90% of our seafood. Um, is, this, is this seafood that is being farmed? And if so, how is it being farmed? Yes, yeah, so people may not realize or know much about aquaculture, but they are Americans are eating a lot of aquacultured <laughs> product. So, yeah, so the estimate is that we're importing 90% of our seafood, and about half of that is aquacultured. Um, and a lot of it, not all, but a lot of it is coming um, from Asian countries, which have really just really uh, gone full force into this. And, you know, so it's things like shrimp. Um, it is, we do a lot of farmed salmon, or farmed salmon is imported. We don't farm salmon in the U.S. at this point. Um, and so there's a lot of concerns about that that range from the environmental impacts of you know what's happening in those aquaculture facilities they're just happening somewhere else um you know with shrimp farms it's things like they're coastal so it's things like mangrove destruction mm-hmm. and then you know the impact that has when there's a storm the impact that has on local fishing communities there's tremendous variations country to country in terms of what the standards are what chemicals and drugs are used um, even among certain fish, so like there's one you know famous comparison going around now that Norway uses virtually no antibiotics to raise salmon, but Chile uses a million pounds of antibiotics a year to raise salmon. So it's incredibly variable, and we don't have a domestic safety net to protect consumers for it. So less than two percent of imported fish gets any kind of inspection by our FDA. So we're reliant on these other countries to have a good system, and many of them do not have a good system. Wow. Well, we're definitely going to get into some of the regulatory. I have, I've got a bunch of regulatory questions for you um, after the break. But um, Brianna, in your research, I know that you've 
we've done a lot of work in Norway, like we said earlier, and also in Chile. Is that consistent with what you've heard in terms of antibiotic use? Absolutely. There's been a lot of work in Norway since the 80s to just rain in that antibiotic use. They've reduced those by about 99%, mostly through vaccination. So they're able to vaccinate the fish against certain diseases, but there's only vaccines for certain certain diseases, ones like SRS, which is a bacterial disease, we don't have a vaccine for. So there's still some antibiotic use and still some risk um, for those that don't have vaccines. And you write extensively on both the health and environmental concerns raised by um, these aquaculture practices. Can you kind of sketch out an overview of some of the major issues? Yeah. In in many cases, they're very similar to large-scale agriculture. Um, So one of the things is that these fish can escape from the nets that they are in. Um, These are domestic species. It's not the same as a wild salmon. And so there is some risk that the genetics of these domesticated breeds will get into the wild and breed with the wild species and and change the genetic pool for the species, which is certainly... um, certainly could have some negative impacts. The The place I was visiting um, is a company called Surmac in Hammerfest, Norway, and they, of the 8 million fish they have in their farms, they said they've only had two escapes. Um, so I, I find that hard to believe, right. but... <laughs> I mean, those you know. seem almost like those other two good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'd like to see where, where those two escapees ended up. But um, antibiotics, as we said, is also a big issue. They produce a lot of waste. You know, you... you contain a lot of these fish in a net in a small area. In Norway, they are in the fjord, so there's a little more protection from the open ocean, but those fish produce a lot of waste, and so that obviously has a huge impact on the ecosystems and the environment within the fjord. There's also a lot of chemicals that are used to treat the fish um, to protect them against diseases, and that's additional pollution that, you know, the, the, the water is not isolated from the rest of the ocean environment, so those are, those are going right. out into, into the environment. And then there's health risks for the fish. Sea lice is a huge issue, and it's a parasite just the same way humans get lice when they're crowded in small areas. Gross. It's really nasty. <laughs> So don't gross. look. Don't look at pictures on Google, Google Images, um, unless we really unless we really want to reduce consumption of salmon. There we go. Maybe that's the solution. <laughs> Show people pictures of sea lice. Um, so that you know that has a huge impact not only within the aquaculture, but those diseases can spread outside to wild wild salmon as well. So there's a number of issues with environmental health, with the fish health. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the other things to think about is, is the human health. Even, you know, aside from the risks that were mentioned about not having it regulated by, you know, the, the fish, as you said, don't produce omega-3s. So a lot of the fish food is changing. Now, sometimes the salmon are fed vegetable oil. So instead of having all these healthy omega-3s, which is why people eat the salmon, they think it's a healthy thing. It doesn't have those omega-3s because they're not consuming it, which means it's not going into us. So, you know, it it, it impacts the environment, it impacts the salmon themselves and humans who who consume it. And it sounds like there's no standards, which we're going to talk about in a minute, to determine the type of, you know... Farm, farm-raised salmon that you're eating. I think, you know, as is the case with any kind of large-scale industrial production, it's extremely difficult to keep tabs on all the right. companies and also to have any sort of um, 
you know, you have to come to agreements across a lot of borders, and mm-hmm. that's hard enough on land, but in the ocean, those borders mm-hmm. are more a lot fuzzier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and, and Bren, I know that you have to jump off the line pretty soon, but I just want to ask one question, one more question for you. Um, these issues that Brianna kind of uh, raised and talked about, are these specific to finfish, or can they also impact non-finfish as well, and are these, are these problems that you have to contend with on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, because we do no zero inputs, we don't have to worry about feed, we don't mm-hmm. have to do antibiotics, we're, we're not dealing with animals that swim around, so there's no escapes, which is really good. <laughs> and what we do is, all we go, we go out into the local waters, we, grand, we grab eight oysters, two pieces of kelp, a couple, uh, you know, scallops and mussels and bring them in and, and have them reproduce uh, in our tanks, you know, and we have a, we've got a co-op. That we um, uh, that we all run, and then bring that out to our cages and out to our long lines and things like that. So all we're doing is um, reproducing what's naturally in the water. No separate strains, uh, nothing like that. So it's, and the idea for us is to actually overproduce and underharvest. So all of our oysters, all of our kelps, they all send spores and feed out into the natural environment. So you go around my farm, you're now seeing natural. Uh, oyster sets, you're seeing new kelp forest showing up. And what, what was once like a patch of mud, basically, in, in, in Connecticut is now this thriving ecosystem. Wow. And where in, in the New York area, if, if at all, can we find um, some of your products? Well, it's harvest. We're just entering um, kelp harvest season in uh-huh. um, the next two months. So we'll be, there'll be quite a few, um, uh, we're coming out with like a, uh, uh, a, um, uh, uh, I, I like fish trimmings and kelp uh, burger with Dr. Dish. That'll be a great place to you know drdish.com and, and check out there. But we'll also be um, selling directly online, which then goes back into training unemployed fishermen to become seaweed and shellfish farmers at greenwave.org. If folks want to up in there. Absolutely. Well, wonderful. Well, we're going we're gonna to go do a quick commercial break, but before we do, Bren, thank you so much for joining us. He has another speaking engagement in a few minutes, so we're just thrilled that you um, had time to fit us in today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much. It was an honor. <laughs> Great. Yeah. All right. Now, and now we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. On Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Brianna Draxler from Popular Science and pa- Patty Lavera from Food and Water Watch, all about aquaculture. 
I want to focus our conversation now on my favorite topic, which is industry regulation um, and (laughs) the future of aquaculture in the U.S. Um, Patty, can you give us a a brief overview just to kind of kick off this conversation on what federal agency is primarily responsible for regulating aquaculture in the U.S.? So it kind of depends about which water you're talking about. So right off the coast, uh, it's largely a state issue, and so Uh different states will do different things. And then when you get to about three miles out, you get into kind of federal waters from three miles to I think it's about 200 miles is U.S. government territory. So um, different states have different uh, situations in terms of what they'll allow. There are quite a few states that are are doing uh, what we just heard about, you know, kind of shellfish, um, you know, oysters and mussels and things like that. Um, Some states are dabbling with with bigger fish, fin fish, aquaculture. There's been some experimental stuff in Hawaii. And then some states don't allow it. Like Alaska is very clear you're not going to raise fin fish there because they have a wild, especially salmon fishery, and they view, you know, fin fish and salmon farms as a real threat. And they're dealing with with, um, salmon farms off the coast of British Columbia that impact the fisheries in Alaska. So that's a no-no under Alaskan law. So that's the first couple miles. But then when you get three miles out, the federal government's in charge, and they are – there's been a lot of controversy about whether to allow, you know, these big open ocean uh, fin fish operations, and there's a proposal on the table to, to do that after many years of talk in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So that is that is um, perfect segue to my next question about um, the first ever, feder- first ever federal regulation for large-scale fin um fish farming in the ocean that um, came out a few weeks ago. And a lot of people are saying this is sort of like opening a new frontier in the harvesting of um, popular seafood uh, species. So these rules um, allow, yeah, like you said, farming of fish in federal waters, um, specifically in the Gulf of Mexico. Can you give us a little bit more insight into what's going on here and, and when these rules are expected to be implemented? Yeah, so this has been a long debate, uh, very long, mm-hmm. <laughs> over a decade. Different, wow. you know, there, I'll spare you some of the nerdy details. There's a lot of debate about whether um, the agency in the federal government, which is NOAA, mm-hmm. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, whether they can actually do this without Congress giving them new authority. NOAA says they can. There's been a lot of controversy about that. They're using the rules they use for managing fishing for aquaculture, and that's a debate. Um, but what they've done after much... Much controversy over a decade is put out a rule a few weeks ago that said this is how you can get a permit to do uh, aquaculture in the Gulf of Mexico. They said they'd give up to 20 permits, and that could amount to a lot of fish, about 60 million pounds of fish per year. They put a few restrictions on it. They said you can only do species that we would normally find in the Gulf, which is kind of an admission to me that they think the fish could get out. Um, so they, they did put some restrictions on there that you can't grow, for example, salmon in the Gulf of Mexico. But uh, we're still not happy with this proposal. A lot of other folks aren't either. And is, is um, Food and Water Watch's kind of main opposition, does it involve like whether or not they had the jurisdiction to finalize this rule, or is it more about the environmental and, and health risks, would you say? Well, you can always get us worked up over a good jurisdictional <laughs> battle here in Washington, <laughs> but um, ultimately we don't think this is an appropriate use of the Gulf of Mexico. We don't think it's an appropriate use of public, you know, uh, uh, public waterways. 
Uh, we're very worried about the environmental impacts. We're very worried about um, impacts on commercial fishermen who are down there trying to deal with a, a rough ecosystem that's had plenty of disasters in the last couple of years, and this could be one more thing they have to deal with. So environmental worries, uh, economic worries, and then on top of that, yeah, there's, there are a lot of process questions. Okay. Um, and I want to ask a a question about environmental justice issues. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about um, whether or not there are certain populations that bear the brunt of aquaculture unequally? And, you know, what what are some of these kind of issues that that, that arise when, when thinking about aquaculture? So it's kind of it depends on the place and the type. You know, like we were saying earlier, aquaculture is such a broad term, right, a right. lot of different things. You know, there's there's absolutely been um, a critique, you know, internationally that kind of indigenous, you know, fishing coastal communities are displaced. You know, they can't access the places they used to fish because now it's under private control for some kind of fish farming. Uh, there's a lot of uh, places, kind of in tropical parts of the world, where you know, coastal kind of swampy areas are where especially shrimp farms are located. And that takes away a buffer in the event of, you know, big storm surges and things like that. Um, you know, it can change the economics, or even here in the U.S., where, you know, for, for fishing communities, it depends who's running that fish farm and where they process those fish. And if they need local businesses to do that anymore, it could really change, like, the social fabric of a fishing community. Brianna, did you come across this issue in your research at all? Yeah, it, the the plant I visited in Norway actually has they do process it all in in the same town where they're farming and they had to there was a number of people who came from other countries to work there because they they needed work and the the local people weren't working in the factory so there was some you know discussion about whether or not it can work with the fishing community um, and I, I think they're still trying to figure some of those things out it definitely was a business that employed people locally but uh, you know I think there's always there's always issues about um, are jobs inherently good or do they need to be the right jobs for the for the place mm-hmm. um, what are some of the sustainability efforts um, Brianna that companies are using to try to mitigate some of the environmental and health impacts of aquaculture yeah, the, the company CERMAC that I visited actually has a lot of things in the works that they're trying to improve it. I think they're, they're aware of the issues and the negativity surrounding it. So they are making some, some efforts to improve. They have something called EcoNets, which they use to contain the fish populations. Um, they're stronger and don't need to be cleaned as frequently. And so that helps not having to haul them in and out of the ocean. And it also protects more against predators getting in or fish escaping. Um, they've also started to include lump fish in these nets, which is a small, a small fish, kind of like the size of a herring, and it will actually eat the sea lice off the salmon. So if there are sea lice, it can kind of keep the populations down. Gross and good. I, I mean, it's, I can't decide which is more gross, the fact that it's called a lump <laughs> fish or the fact that the lump fish eats lice. Like, I don't know. Pretty sad existence. <laughs> um, they also have added something called a lice skirt, which is a structure to keep um, keep the lice out of the, the netted area where the fish are living. And then they also use lights, which I thought was pretty interesting, to um, control the maturation of the fish. And so because their maturation is determined by the light exposure, and that's pretty extreme in northern Norway, 
it's dark all winter and light mm-hmm. all summer. They're able to use lights to kind of control that more um, so that they, they can decide when, when the fish will mature. And how prevalent are these efforts and, and have they seen success with them? Um, they're just starting in Norway, at least. Um, this company has 20 different permits or licenses to have their operations and Two of those are now considered green by the Directorate of Fisheries, which is the Norwegian entity um, who, who distributes the licenses. And so they, two of their 20 um, are implementing these. And so it's, it's a new program that um, the Directorate is rolling out. And it's better than nothing, but certainly a long way to go. Mm, yeah. Um, Patty, are there any certification schemes that would help um, ensure the seafood we're eating here is safe and environmentally sound? Um, and what kind, of pro- what kind of these programs exist, if any, and what are their drawbacks? There's a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> it seems like there's more all the time. And there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of controversy about which is the right one. And, you know, and their position on aquaculture is a, is a big part of that controversy. So, um I, we actually don't have one that we point people to. We have a, a guide that we do, which is more about substitutions, and it's kind of getting what we were talking about earlier is we can't all just continue only eating salmon and shrimp, right? It's time to mix right. it up. Yeah. So we have some suggestions for things like that. As a rule of thumb, um, I urge people, we do, after many battles, we still have it for fish. We don't have it for other foods anymore, but we do still have country of origin labeling. And for mm-hmm. fish in the grocery store, it has to tell you farmed or wild. That gives you something to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the advice you know, varies by species. So for salmon, we say go wild. Um, for other fish, it may not be the best option because it could be a fishery that's not in great shape. So this is one we're doing some homework at home is is useful. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot more stuff happening like we've heard about to connect people with like local sources, which is great. There's a lot more happening to try to get people to eat invasive species, um, you know, which mm-hmm. wreaks their own havoc. So I, we don't have one particular certification we point to because some of them, there's a lot of criticism that they go too easy on aquaculture. Um, and, uh, and Brianna, you, you write in terms of looking at the future of fish farming that the future is, in fact, on land. Can you uh, tell us why? I think if, if we're talking about we need a way to produce a lot of fish, right. that would eliminate a number of the issues. It's going to eliminate the escape problem. Mm-hmm. It's going to eliminate the, you know, the disease spread to native populations. It can get rid of a lot of those issues as well as the pollution. You can contain that on land at least and get rid of it hopefully in a, in a cleaner way environmentally. Um, I think there's still a lot of issues with that. You know, those structures can still be wiped out when there are natural disasters, and you could be looking at a much bigger issue if all, that all gets into the ocean. So I think it, it, it's a matter, again, of if, if the demand is such that we need to produce a lot of fish, land-based structures are one of the things that um, at least this company in Norway, for sure, was talking a lot about as the way forward. And Patty, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, I mean, there's potential there, and with anything, it can be done well or it can be done badly, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of this is our regulations are very far behind in figuring out how to do this. So we know folks that are starting, a lot of them call them recirculating farms. Um, and so, you know, they, or they talk about aquaponics. You're raising yeah. fish and you're growing vegetables. And it's it's pretty impressive. Um, people are, are doing some incredibly creative things, but you can also see it can be taken to, you know, an industrial scale, and it could be abusive, right? So, and But what many of these folks talk about is how... Their local authorities don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to give them a permit. They don't know if they're a lab or a farm or a pool supply center. You know what I mean? They Mm -hmm. don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And so this is an emerging area that we have to figure out some good, you know, some good requirements for because just look with anything with farming, right? You can raise things incredibly responsibly and raise the same crop incredibly irresponsibly, you know, with a 
higher density or in the wrong place or with the wrong method. So we have to kind of start wrapping our hands around it. There's some people doing some pretty amazing stuff um, inland in, you know, in cities inside that people may walk by the street and not even know what's going on in there. There's some pretty creative things happening. Right. All right. Well, I think on that positive note, we're going to leave it there today. Thank you so much to our guests, Brianna Draxler, Patty Lavera, and Brent Smith for joining us today. Our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself, and our intern is Austin Brunyarski. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer, Liz Smith. You will be greatly, greatly missed. We love you. Um, the show is available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.